So right before lockdown, I pitched to Anna doing the politics podcast, you know, obviously from the studio where we just have like 10 puppies in the room. I mean, I would like to hang out with 10 puppies, but I would ideally like to do that while not doing my job. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. In the wake of Donald Trump's presidency, the idea of the celebrity politician isn't going away. Caitlyn Jenner says she's in the process of deciding whether to run against Gavin Newsom in California's gubernatorial recall election this fall. Matthew McConaughey has teased entering politics and in a recent poll leads incumbent Greg Abbott in a hypothetical matchup for Texas governor. And you can debate whether Andrew Yang is a celebrity, but there's little question his high level of name recognition has helped propel him to the head of the pack in the race for New York City mayor. Today, we're going to talk about the appeal of celebrity candidates and what it tells us about our politics. We're also going to discuss the politics of reparations. Last week, a Democratic proposal in the House to study reparations for slavery and the disenfranchisement of African Americans was voted out of committee for the first time since it was first introduced in 1989. That sets up the possibility of a full vote of all the members of the House. Democrats are increasingly talking about the subject, which they once largely avoided. So we'll take a look at why. And here with me to do that are senior politics writer Perry Beacon Jr. Hey, Perry. Good to see you, Galen. Also here with us, politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. And managing editor Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hey, Galen. So let's begin with celebrity politicians. And we're going to have a broader discussion here, but we'll kick things off with one of our favorite questions, which is good use of polling or bad use of polling. So people say a company that conducts on And again, I should say, the name of the company is People Say. That was not the beginning of the sentence. So the company, P-I-P-L-S-A-Y, a company that conducts online polls gauging consumer opinion for brands, asked Americans if they wanted to see Matthew McConaughey and Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, run for governor of Texas and president of the United States, respectively. So McConaughey, governor of Texas, The Rock, president of the United States. They found that 58% of Americans wanted at least one of those two things to happen, and that 29% of respondents wanted both. Like I said, we're going to unpack this a whole lot more, but just to kick things off, is this a good use or bad use of polling? I don't think it was the best use of polling. They essentially lumped the answers to three different questions together, which is how we got that 58% figure. So I think According to the poll, 21% of respondents said they wanted The Rock to run for president, 12% wanted McConaughey to run for Texas governor, and like you said, Galen, 29% wanted both. So when you add that all together, that's how they got 58. So I would not give this poll the highest of marks. It is a bizarre way to word the question. Like the two things aren't really related, and in the way that they are related, celebrity candidates than just ask if you're in favor of celebrity candidates. So so I would agree with Alex there that this was kind of a, a bizarre question wording. Well, they did actually ask the question more broadly. One of the questions was, what is your opinion about Hollywood stars running for political posts? And that was 45% said they're free to do what they want. 19% said anyone can join politics these days. 13% said they must stick to acting. they must stick to political activism at most, and 11% not sure. So that's a kind of bizarre slate of answers there. But does that give you any better answer to what you're wondering, Micah? 
No, it's just like, are those all the opinions you can have about Hollywood stars running for political posts? <laughs> I like that they're all kind of, they're very specific reactions. Yeah. <laughs> but on the surface, it looks like over half of respondents are saying, yes, Hollywood stars can make good politicians. Because I think if you add the yes answers together, again, you get something like 63%. But really, it's like 30-something percent said yes if they have the right political aptitude. And then another percentage said yes if they have the right team in place. So if they have one thing but not the other, I, I mean, it's unclear how the answers will change. So a little more than half of respondents to this survey were open to celebrity candidates under the right circumstances. That seems fair to say, right? Yeah, I think so. But we also have actually better polling on this. So it's okay if we come to the conclusion that this is a garbage poll, which do you have opinions either way? You know, garbage poll is a strong word, but some of the question wordings here and the, and the way they chose responses seem a little confusing to me is the way I would put it. Okay, a little confusing. Alex, where did you come down on this? Bad use of polling. I lean toward Galen garbage poll. Okay, and Perry? I think that question itself is not a great question, but the subject about celebrities and politicians is a good subject. So I think good use of polling. And I think now that I'm looking at this poll more, they've asked, if you want a Hollywood star to run, which one do you want to run? And it appears that Tom Hanks is way ahead of Robert Downey Jr. And Will Smith is way ahead of Robert De Niro. And Jane Fonda is not very popular. And Oprah Winfrey is very popular. I actually think that tells us something. I've written about this a couple times. Like after 2016, I, I raised the idea of a Tom Hanks style person running. I do think the idea that there are certain celebrities who have some some crossover appeal, maybe to both parties, multiracial, et cetera. I think The Rock probably falls in that category. I don't know about Matthew McConaughey as much. I think Tom Hanks, Will Smith, and Oprah and Angelina Jolie appear to score well in this survey. And I think that is sort of useful to think about is that there probably is a certain kind of celebrity who could win a lot of electoral votes. And I think it's someone like Tom Hanks. I agree with that. But it appears that they asked about women and men separately in this. Yeah, yeah, this is a bad, again, this is not the best way to ask this question, yes. Why did they ask them separately? There's not like a, a male primary and a female primary and the winners face right. off there. <laughs> That's not how this works. The parties are open to primary reform at the moment, I think. Micah, you might be able to suggest this. That's a bad use of primary in Galen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move on from this people say poll to a perhaps more reliable, at least academic poll that came out over the weekend. And this is according to a UT Tyler Dallas Morning News poll. Matthew McConaughey led Texas Governor Greg Abbott in a hypothetical matchup 45% to 33%. Obviously, a lot of undecideds there. Now, Matthew McConaughey has not announced that he is running for governor of Texas. And if he did, he hasn't said really which primary he would run in or whether he would be an independent candidate, etc. So at this point in time, with the information that we have, is that a good use of polling? So I think yes. The problem, of course, being it's not clear which party he would be running in. So I think that is a big question. But it does tell me that like Matthew McConaughey probably has fairly high name ID. 
people have some generically positive views about him, and maybe Greg Abbott is not the most popular person in the world. So I think that tells me something useful. I, again, since we don't know what party Matthew McConaughey would run in, that is a, it's a huge problem. But his support is coming largely from Democrats in this poll and independents as well. But I think it suggests that it's not a crazy idea for him to think about running for governor. Yeah, I mostly agree with that. Although I think that it's hard to separate for me the fact that they did put him up against Abbott in this poll with the fact that his support is mostly coming from Democrats and, and independents. I mean, what other choice did they have, I guess? Like Abbott is the governor. But I do wonder if there was a Democratic incumbent governor and you put Matthew McConaughey up, how much Republican support would he draw? It just makes it a little complicated to say, because as Perry said, we don't know which party he's part of. So where would his support come from? As long as he's running against Abbott, if that happens, then of course it would probably mostly come from Democrats. And one thing I wish the poll would have asked is the people who say they support McConaughey over Abbott, just a why. Because like Perry and Micah said, it's not clear what primary McConaughey would run in. He hasn't voted in a Texas primary since at least 2012 and has never donated to a Texas or federal campaign. We don't really know much about his politics. So is it just the fact that he's a celebrity and has high name ID? Is that what is drawing people to his candidacy or is there more to it? Yeah. So let's take this one step further. Do you think that McConaughey could make it through a primary, either Republican or Democrat, or actually be a viable candidate as an independent in Texas to make this a more grounded proposition, grounded in reality? There's a world in which Matthew McConaughey could run as independent and say, I'm avowedly not a Democrat, but he'd be closer to Democratic views than Abbott would, obviously. And therefore, the Democrats might not run anybody against him. So you get the best of both worlds, sort of a candidate with most Democratic votes, but who's not a Democrat, therefore turning off independents and maybe some soft Republicans even. So I think there's a world in which McConaughey could do that. Could he win the Democratic primary? In Texas, my guess is yes, because I don't know what his views are, but I assume he's a Hollywood celebrity, so he's socially liberal, economically more moderate. I assume his politics are Bloombergish, so my guess is he probably could win a Democratic primary. Hmm. Alex, you're based in Texas. What's your sense of his appeal in either party's primary? I don't think McConaughey stands a chance in the Republican primary. I think McConaughey, like Perry said, is probably, if I were to guess, more of like a moderate Democrat socially liberal, fiscally conservative in a way. And I think most Republican primary voters want someone a little more further right than that, which I think Abbott has that appeal. So I don't think McConaughey really stands a chance in the Republican primary. On the Democratic side, if he did run as a Democrat, Texas Democrats have tried just about every type of candidate to run for governor and have not had any luck so far. So maybe McConaughey is the type of candidate they need on their side. That said, I do think McConaughey, if he ran, would likely run as an independent. And I think Democrats will field some sort of candidate and McConaughey will likely do better if he ran as an independent than whatever Democrat the party ends up fielding. Because when we talk about independent politicians, in general, we say they're largely not successful because people have underlying partisanship, even if they say they're independent. We talked about this on the podcast last week. So do you have a sense that an independent could actually be successful in Texas or would they fall into the same trap that they fall into in most other states or even in national elections? If it was a generic independent candidate, yes, it would probably fall into the same trap as everyone else. But 
it's Matthew McConaughey. And the fact that he has that high name ID and money will probably bode well for him in a way that it hasn't before for previous independent candidates. I also think Alex and Perry are right to identify the kind of electability motivations by Democratic voters, because one way not to fall into the trap of past independent candidates anywhere is if there's not a really viable Democratic candidate on the ticket. So if you looked at that poll, a majority of Democrats said they wanted a progressive as their candidate. So if Texas Democrats are just building their ideal candidate, at least a majority, I think, would probably choose someone to the left of McConaughey. But as Alex said, they've tried all these different types of candidates, have not succeeded. And so maybe they decide we need to put our sort of ideological preferences aside, either go with McConaughey on the Democratic ticket or better yet, maybe from an electability point of view, basically don't run a Democrat have McConaughey run on an independent ticket and have him take on Abbott that way. But it would be, that would be an electability play. I don't think McConaughey is like the best representation in terms of policy preferences of of Texas Democrats. Right, Alex? Yeah, I would say so, especially since his politics are so unclear at this point, but he has said that he's taking more moderate stances on things. So maybe there are some political strategists in Texas who would think that way. But do you think the Democratic Party in Texas, Democratic primary voters, Democratic voters more broadly, would be like, okay, cool, McConaughey is running as an independent. We're just going to kind of like sit this one out and support McConaughey. I mean, isn't there enough of an activist base amongst Texas Democrats that that wouldn't be viable? We just watched the Democratic voters choose the electable person and focus on that extensively for a year. So I think if there was a clear reason to think McConaughey was polling well. And if we had like 15 polls that all showed McConaughey leading double digits against Abbott, yeah, I think the most Democrats would figure it out and and sort of be like, okay, Greg Abbott is quite conservative. So I think if there's a path to victory, I think, yeah, would there be some activists concerned about it? Sure. I mean, the question gets to like how parties work, though. The real question is like, even if McConaughey ran as independent, there is inevitably going to be a Democratic primary. There will be a Democratic nominee. And the actual mechanism to shut that person's support down is actually not easy to maintain. That's the question is, Abbott's going to get 45%. So the other 55%, they have to stop all Democrats from voting for the Democratic candidate who's going to be saying Democratic things to vote for the actor who's going to be saying actor things. That's going to be challenging. Yeah, you put that better than I put it, but that seems like the main question here. Well, what Perry's saying, though, the main takeaway from that is that Joe Biden is the Matthew McConaughey of national politics. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly the same. That's the headline of this podcast, please, Galen. Okay, okay, we'll consider it. We'll see if others approve. I think a lot of Democratic voters are amenable to electability arguments, one. And I think if the formal Texas Democratic Party decides Matthew is our candidate, essentially, unless the Democratic nominee is super rich, the party can shut down a candidate by just not supporting them. This happened in Florida, I think it was 2010, where Kendrick Meek was the Democratic nominee. He was running against Marco Rubio, and the party sort of shut down support for him and started supporting Charlie Chris. He was the independent, but he had been the Florida governor as a Republican, so he was more moderate. Rubio got way over 50% anyway, but I think that scenario where the party sort of shut Kendrick Meek 
sneak down. He was a Democrat. Can, I think, happen if the Democratic nominee is somebody weak and the potential Democratic nominee is somebody like Matthew McConaughey. Interesting. So this was all basically a setup to talk about celebrity politicians in America more broadly. And so I want to do that. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. We've kicked things off by talking about Matthew McConaughey and a hypothetical run for Texas governor. We have no idea whether or not that will actually happen. We mentioned some other possible celebrity candidates. But whether or not McConaughey runs for governor of Texas, there is a real phenomenon, if you want to call it, in American politics where celebrities are drawn to running for political office, like former President Trump like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Al Franken. I mean, there's lots of examples of this. And right now we're looking at a a situation where Caitlyn Jenner is also considering running for governor of California. Andrew Yang, somewhat of a celebrity, is leading the pack in the New York City mayoral race. You know, are we in a moment right now where the country has become more amenable to celebrity politicians or is this the extension of a long-running trend? I think we're definitely going to see an uptick in celebrities running for political office post-Trump. But obviously, like you mentioned, Galen, this is a trend that predates Trump. I just think it's going to be tenfold going forward. I think we've gotten to a time where so many politicians want to inject themselves into entertainment and pop culture. I mean, there was a book written about Obama, who, to my knowledge, has never been in a Hollywood film where they called him celebrity in chief. So today among candidates, there's this question of, are you going to go on Jimmy Kimmel? Are you going to go on The Breakfast Club? I think because so many politicians want to be in the public national sphere, similar to celebrities, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that we see more celebrities running for office. So it's not just celebrities becoming politicians, but also politicians becoming celebrities? Well, The skills required to excel in politics have changed over time and become much more similar to the skills required to excel in entertainment. Even if you like put aside celebrity candidates, you know, people who make the jump from Hollywood, let's say, to politics, look at the candidates who have succeeded over the past several decades and their candidates who have better public speaking skills. They're candidates who have more quote-unquote charisma on TV. Remember during the 2008 campaign, the general election, when Obama was, you know, as Alex said, he was like 
in some ways, this first full-blown celebrity in chief in the sense that he, he dominated popular culture. The McCain campaign like tried to use that against him, remember? They were like, well, yeah, he's really magnetic on TV and, and a great public speaker. Clinton campaign tried that too. You know, what will he do when he answers the phone at 3 a.m.? So going all the way back to Reagan, who, of course, did make the jump from Hollywood to politics, but even like Eisenhower in 52 brought in Madison Avenue image consultants, Nixon in 60 did. It's just the skills overlap more and more. For a long time, I think the like Venn diagram was politicians who were really interested in politics and policy, but also good at the celebrity stuff. So that's Obama, right? Obama was good at the celebrity stuff, but there was never any doubt that he was genuinely interested in governance and policy. Reagan too, Reagan made the jump from Hollywood to politics, but he had a long history of political activism, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're getting more to the point, you know, I think where Trump was really a departure was just like, a celebrity with really no interest in governance who just wanted to be a celebrity in the world of politics. So to me, that's like the question going forward is not whether celebrities will continue to make the jump into politics. I think, as Alex said, we'll continue to see that. It's what kind of celebrities. And is it celebrities like Schwarzenegger, who clearly had a passion for governance and policy and politics, or is it just celebrities who want to be a celebrity in a, in a different realm? I don't see this trend really happening. Like in 1998, Jesse Ventura, the wrestler, is elected governor of Minnesota. If you told me 22 years later, I think I would have said, we're going to have a lot of celebrities, governors, senators, presidents. I don't actually think we have. Like, I think I'm struggling to think of like, I think the the senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, I think, was mm-hmm. the coach of one of the football teams there. So that was kind of a celebrity. But of the hundred senators, I'm trying to think of who's a celebrity. I think that number is fairly small. Of the 50 governors, I think that number is fairly small. Trump was president. So that's one of the last three presidents. I don't think of this as happening yet, that celebrities are broad spread picking up in politics. I think that's true in a strict sense, but I think as the skills required to be a celebrity have become more important in politics, let's say paramount in politics, I think that you've seen maybe not celebrities take over politics, but the skills required to be a good politician, to be a good legislator or a good executive become far less important. And I think all of this helps explain why you now have so many members of Congress who don't do any legislating and frankly don't want to do any legislation. They're just there to get on the nightly news or to send out the outrage emails, the fundraising emails. I guess to me, that's the taking over of politics by celebrity culture more than like, okay, we have a celebrity in every seat in the Senate. I agree with that for sure. I guess the other question I would have is, is this going to become different in the two parties? Like my sense is as the Democratic Party goes in this 
more wonky, equality-based direction. I don't totally think Tom Hanks can win the Democratic primary in the current Democratic Party because there would be a Warren type who was more left and more wonky. There'd also be like a Biden type who was maybe of the same views as Tom Hanks, but had more experience. And I sort of feel like, you know, we can talk about Andrew Yang in a second, but I wonder if the Democratic primary is going to sort of grade always more. They're the party that believes in government and wonkiness, so they're going to always grade against celebrities. Now, the Republican Party, I think, could become taken over by celebrities. I think you're, they're getting more away from governing. And the problem there, I think, is that most celebrities are left. Like, if the Hollywood class of rich people was all Republicans, I think you'd have a lot more celebrity senators. But I think part of the problem is the most celebrities would try to run in Democratic primaries. I think they're not going to be overly successful there. I've seen this noted in some of the academic articles or papers that talk about celebrities and politics that, yes, perhaps because Republicans are more distrustful of the role of government in society to begin with, that having political experience isn't as important for Republican voters as it might be for Democratic voters. But I've also seen suggested in this idea that celebrities could become more influential in politics and running for office is that politicians in general have become so unpopular and the parties are seen as so unappealing that this is a natural progression because politicians themselves are going to be somewhat unpopular because politics is seen as corrupt by broad swaths of the American public. The only people who have enough name recognition then to like garner the support to win an election are celebrities, but they don't have like the baggage or negative associations of politics that actual politicians have. And so that it creates this kind of perfect environment where we should expect celebrities to blossom and increasingly play a role in our politics. Does that seem like a persuasive argument to people? Yes. <laughs> it's kind of the skill set argument. Go back to our conversation about Matthew McConaughey. None of us really know where he stands on most issues. Research shows that's a real advantage in a lot of elections because nobody can pin you down and you end up being kind of a tabula rasa for most voters. They can just kind of project what they want onto you. You have the advantage of being a quote unquote outsider, right? We saw that with Trump. So yeah, there are, there are a lot of built-in advantages there. I should say like, there's a version of this where the celebrityification of politics isn't like necessarily evil. Like in one piece of our reading, there was this Orson Welles quote that was like, I don't think politicians are crooks. I think they are actors. But that kind of acting is not lying as long as it refers to and reflects and exhausts the essential commonly held ideals of a culture. Those performances are part of our culture, even though they are performances, end quote. So I think what he's saying like is, you know, politics has always been about performing to one extent or another. And I think with the advent of TV, with the advent of the internet, those performance skills have become more and more important. If those performances are still connected to a set of beliefs, a set of policy positions, a set of ideals, then maybe this isn't super corrosive. And the kind of advantages you were talking about, Galen, maybe don't ruin our democracy. I think what was different with Trump, and this is again where I'll go back to like what the question is going forward is, that performance wasn't genuinely connected to a set of ideals, really. The set of ideals was like grafted onto the performance in real time and, and afterwards. So that to me is the question of like, 
will we see performances of the heart or like artificial performances? I'm struggling with the question a little bit only because like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I feel like she's a politician, but she's becoming a celebrity by taking celebrity tactics. And is she going to be end up being big? Like, I agree that people don't like politicians in this generic sense, but if Marjorie Taylor Greene ran in the Republican primary against Hollywood celebrity X. I wonder if like she is now a celebrity, but a celebrity for a set of policy issues that is sort of a better celebrity, particularly if politics is now about winning the primary, which I would argue in general is mostly what it is now. Is it better to be sort of an AOC, a Marjorie Taylor somebody who takes sort of more radical views and uses that to become a celebrity as opposed to a sort of, like I would say Trump did that in a certain way. Trump was a celebrity who then ran in the primary on a celebrity plus radical views platform. And that might be sort of a killer combination. And the problem with Matthew McConaughey or Tom Hanks and all these guys is we're skeptical they can win primaries, right? The sort of popular celebrity, some of they can't win a primary against the sort of more activist celebritized political figure. Yeah, And that's a question that I had in this is like, is it more important to be a celebrity or to be an outsider and run against the establishment? Because Marjorie Taylor Greene is positioning herself as an outsider against the establishment. I would say the latter. I think it's more important to be seen as an outsider and someone who can shake up the status quo. And we saw Trump with his calls to drain the swamp throughout his presidency. I think the appeal to voters is the fact that someone's not a politician and they bring in this different viewpoint and maybe even different set of skills. And I think that's part of the reason why looking forward to future elections, why I think Tucker Carlson might be seen as a potential 2024 Republican, someone who's an outsider and maybe has sort of those more like fringe Republican views. So given that, where would you place Andrew Yang in the celebrity, not celebrity, outsider, not outsider, whatever hierarchy? I mean, I don't think he's a celebrity in the same way that we look at like The Rock or Matthew McConaughey, but he has been on the national stage and he accumulated this very fiercely loyal following. And I mean, if one of the main tenets of your presidential campaign is a universal basic income of what was it like a thousand dollars a month? Yeah, you're going to get some sort of national attention. And the fact that he did so well as someone who had no governing experience and is doing so well in New York right now, I think he's a celebrity probably similar in the Marjorie Taylor Greene way, but not as radical. Yeah, I would definitely co-sign all of that. Andrew Yang is not a celebrity. He's a politician with some celebrity skills and celebrity attributes like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but he's not The Rock, as Alex said. You know, he's not Tom Hanks. But is he a politician? I think absolutely is the answer to the question is like he was in a series of debates over the last year. Most people don't know who their house member is. A lot of people don't know who their house member is. Andrew Yang was on television in the performance of politics, you know, in these very highly watched events. So I think running for president and for a long time being in the debates and let's not pretend here. Andrew Yang has been involved in many bills passing, intricately governing in the same way that AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene is, in that most House members, particularly in the House, have no actual governing power. They're just, they go on TV, they talk, they tweet what Andrew Yang was doing. So in some ways, like, 
Andrew Yang is sort of in the same way as the more extreme left, extreme right House members are. He's not governed, neither have they. He's sort of famous for ideas he's never had to implement before. He's kind of a political figure without really, he's not Nancy Pelosi, but he's not The Rock either. He's sort of closer to Nancy Pelosi, but not either one. You were saying before that maybe celebrities are more appealing to Republicans because they don't particularly have the same level of trust in government or are interested in governance in the same way Democrats are. But like Andrew Yang doesn't have any governing experience. Like you mentioned, he is at this point in time leading the next person in the polls in the New York Democratic primary by double digits. Is there a particular type of celebrity style person that does appeal to Democrats? I mean, he's like a Yale Law graduate who was in all these wonky debates saying wonky things about wonkiness. Like, I just don't see him in this as a celebrity. I think of celebrities being somebody who is an actor who we don't know much about their political views. He has no day-to-day governing, I think, is different. But in terms of he's a political figure known for saying political things in these ultra-wonky debates. So my guess is the average New York voter supports Andrew Yang. You ask them, is Andrew Yang a smart politician? They would say yes. My guess is they probably assume he was on some city commission for something. I, I think they'd be surprised at how little he's done in terms of voting because who runs for the Democratic nomination without voting very regularly? It's very surprising until you get to it. I've been surprised by reading his record myself. I sort of assumed he was more political than he actually is. And my guess is the average voter, he comes off as very smart and very intellectual. And I think that probably appeals to Democrats. Maybe we need to do some categorizing here because I don't think we should, and I'm not sure if Perry was doing this, lumping Andrew Yang in with the rocks of the world or the Tom Hanks of the world. You can be a well-known politician, a nationally recognized politician. Biden's that, right? Or even at the local level, you know, Abbott is the governor of Texas, has very high name ID in Texas, obviously. So you can be a famous politician. You can be a famous outsider political candidate. I think That's probably the bucket I would put Yang in. Although, how famous is he? The majority of Americans knew who Andrew Yang was in 2020. Yeah, which my guess would be that number is ticked down. I'm just resisting calling Andrew Yang famous a little bit. (laughs) So let's move beyond that. But anyway, so you can be like a a well-known outsider political figure. You don't have this long history of politics. Maybe you come from the business world. Maybe you come from the corporate world. Maybe you come from wherever. In my mind, those buckets are different than like the celebrity candidate in the way that Trump was, in the way that Reagan was, in the way that- I would not say Reagan because Reagan was the governor. You mean before he was governor of California because he ran president- Fair point. When he became governor of California or the the way that Jesse Ventura was, just in the sense that like in that last bucket, there is a set of skills that is really useful in politics that you're importing from the celebrity world- People in those other buckets can have some of those skills. Regular politicians can have some of those skills, but I think it's probably worth differentiating between those. Like Galen, if Rachel Maddow ran for mayor of New York City, I'm not even sure she lives in New York City or not, but I would not say that she is a, she's a celebrity, but I wouldn't put her in the same category. She's never held any government office. She's very famous, but I would put her more in the person who's in politics, but never held office way. I would put Andrew Yang in, not in the sort of actor way. Mm -hmm. I think there are different advantages that come 
with being a celebrity that some of these different buckets have. Like one advantage can be politically amorphous. Another advantage can be super high name recognition. Another advantage could be like charismatic, affable, people just like you. And so having any of those is a good thing. Having all of them might be a really good thing. And so depending on your life experience, you may have different ones of those which help make you successful. I don't know. Is there a place where we can land in all of this in terms of the kinds of candidates that we should expect to be successful going forward? I think kind of what you said, candidates with high name ID, especially Andrew Yang in a ranked choice voting system, I'm sure that will help him. Candidates who aren't afraid to go on network TV, go on different radio stations and to get their names out there, whether that be something like CNN or Fox News or going on, again, something like The Breakfast Club, which has seemed to be more mainstream in 2020. So I think candidates who are not afraid to do that, and then also this idea of the political outsider seems to appeal to a decent chunk of voters. Those are the things to look for. Ultimately, the thing I'm looking for, if we are going to see kind of a proliferation of these sorts of candidates, is do you have a credible, demonstrated, interesting governing and the issues involved in governing. That, to me, is really like the Rubicon that we don't want to cross that often. If you're a political candidate, I don't think we should care where you came from if you have a demonstrated, credible interest in governing. It's when that doesn't exist, I think, where we start to see really worrying signs for democracy. Just my final thought is Andrew Yang is a graduate of the Columbia University Law School, not the Yale Law School. So just to clarify. Some Yale bias there. I am sure Andrew Yang will very much appreciate that correction. Would never want to mix up the two. But anyway, let's move on. And I want to talk about this reparations bill that passed out of committee in the House for the first time ever. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Last Wednesday, a House bill that would form a commission to study reparations was voted out of committee on a party line vote with 25 Democrats voting yes and 17 Republicans voting no. A bill addressing reparations has been introduced in every Congress since Representative John Conyers first proposed the idea in the House in 1989. But this is the first time it's been voted out of committee, setting it up for a possible vote in the full House. And as I mentioned, this bill would create a federal commission to study the effects of slavery and the disenfranchisement of African Americans. And then it would propose forms of rehabilitation or restitution as well. So as I've said here, reparations is not necessarily a new idea. Why are House Democrats moving on this now? This is the continuation of where we've been since Black Lives Matter really emerged in 2013, 2014. So you've seen 
this reparations bill existed for a long time, but ignored and never really discussed. But now you've had in these last five years, and I guess Tanazi Coates wrote a seminal piece about reparations that was very well read on the left. You had the BLM protests around that same time. And you've had this gradual move left among Democrats, particularly on issues about race, particularly on issues around that affect African-Americans. And I think now it is much more of a view on the left than it was when Obama was president that black people have suffered from discrimination. The reason they have less wealth and income is because largely of Jim Crow, slavery, current day discrimination. So I think those views being more accepted, there's reasons reparations are hard to do policy-wise, electorally, even in terms of like who to give them to and how. But the moral case for them has gotten much stronger in democratic circles. And the protests did continue that in last year. But I think the protests only happened because of what happened in 2015 and so on. So we're in this gradual building point to where I think a Nancy Pelosi or somebody who's very electorally focused could have shut this down in 2013. And now you can't really shut it down. The White House has been struggling with this, where they've been asked about this reparations commission, which Biden said he would support during the primary. So he'd already promised this. You can tell the White House is very nervous about this because it's not politically popular, but they've promised they would do it. And there's not really an easy way to be a Democrat in 2021 to be Joe Biden to have won all these black votes and to really be forwardly opposed to reparations. So that's why this can move forward. Yeah, I do think the passage of this was mainly symbolic. Democrats had the votes to pass out of committee, but it's very clear they it will not pass the Senate. And I'm skeptical it will pass the House. I, I would say yes if I had to bet on it, but I do think there will be some Democrats who aren't in favor of this. But like Perry said, I think there's a broader national conversation happening now, particularly, you know, the Chauvin trial is underway, the protests last summer. So I think with all these racial reckonings happening, that some more establishment Democrats, it it doesn't hurt them electorally, I don't think, to say that they're in favor of at least a commission to look into reparations. Yeah, Alex, you've done some reporting on the move to enact reparations in Evanston, Illinois. What was that movement like? And how did the city come to the decision to try to implement this program? So their program is a little different. Essentially, Evanston said, hey, we want to address our past history of redlining. So what they're going to do is give eligible Black residents up to $25,000 for things like mortgages, loans, home renovations, things like that. It's a way to address past uh, discriminatory housing policies in the city. That said, there has been a decent amount of pushback. Um, I haven't heard much from the Republican versus Democratic side, the debate on reparations in Evanston, but I think there's been some question of, okay, why are you just giving the $25,000 for housing? Why can't it just be cash payments? Why can't there be like a little bit more flexibility with how people spend the money? You know, there have been some questions of why is the money going to banks? Why is it not just going directly toward the Black Americans who are supposed to be recipients of this money. So I think overall, it was somewhat of a controversial program just because, as Perry mentioned, reparations isn't something where you have a good chunk of Americans or even a good chunk of Democrats who are like super gung-ho about implementing them. But this was just one city's attempt to address past wrongs against Black Americans in the city. All right, so we're seeing, as you mentioned, some efforts on the local level, even if you've suggested that on the national level, it's largely symbolic. Do we think that this is a bill that will end up passing the full house? 
No, I, I tend to think that they will just not have to have a vote on it because the House can only afford, they, they have very narrow margins. My guess is the members in the swing districts who Pelosi is very responsive to will say, hey, this is, can't pass the Senate anyway unless the filibuster is gone. We're not sure it can pass the Senate even with the filibuster gone. So this cannot pass the Senate. Even though it's a commission, our opponents will attack us for supporting reparations itself. So my guess is this does not come to a vote because the House moderates, the House Democratic moderates don't want to cast the kind of vote that would be controversial. Are there repercussions for not picking it up in the House? I mean, they're going to be criticized by the black activists, some of the leaders, some of the leaders in their communities. I mean, if you're Nancy Pelosi, yes. If you're Abigail Spanberger, I don't know the exact demographics of her district, but a lot of the moderate House members are representing districts that are fairly white and fairly not black. And that's kind of why the districts are close in the first place. So I think for the members in those swing districts, no, there's not a lot of repercussions for not voting for this. And probably it's, it may be more controversial to vote for it. For the Democratic leadership, For Biden, they are going to get some questions about why didn't you push this forward? And they probably are not going to be comfortable saying because of the electoral politics. But I think we know that's the answer. Yeah. So reparations on net right now are not popular. As Perry was just getting at, even among Democrats, I was looking at one poll, I think, where only about one in three white Democrats supported reparations. In other words, it's an issue that right now, at least, unifies Republicans and splits Democrats to some extent. So we're in this moment where on these larger, somewhat more abstract questions, do white people have advantages that black Americans don't? You've seen a big uptick among Democrats, including white Democrats or very much white Democrats who say yes. How big of a problem is discrimination against black Americans? You've seen an uptick basically since 2014 and Ferguson among white Democrats who say, yes, discrimination against black Americans is still a big problem. But then the more specific you get, at least when it comes to reparations, there's less support among white Democrats. And the more it's like, hey, I have to give something up or, hey, this involves me. I think the more you see white people push back against that, no matter how much data they're presented with, they I think at least politically, there's, we're still at a point where white people, including white Democrats, are not getting on board with that. But reparations right now still have more support than they did 10 years ago, right, or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Do you guys think much like those larger, somewhat more abstract questions, we'll see support for reparations grow? Or do you guys not view that as, as inevitable at all? Could it go either way in your in your view? I think it could go either way. So because the U.S. Supreme Court is Republican dominated, so I think you're likely to have a few rulings in the next few years that say affirmative action is not legal and basically say the problem with how we think about race is we're talking about it too much and we should move on from racial-based policy. And even though the Supreme Court may not be representing majority opinion in getting race out, that'll normalize the idea that racial equity is not necessarily a goal we should pursue in a certain way or we should pursue regressively. So you have that factor. And then you have always the prospect that 
the Democrats are perpetually worried that appealing to black people hurts them with white people. So if they lose the midterms in 2022 or 2024, and you can imagine a world where there's a backlash talking about race is controversial. This is a perpetual Democratic Party debate. So that's one way you could go. The other way is, though, one thing about Eviston, Biden won about 90 percent of the vote in the Eviston area. I think Asheville, North Carolina is another city pursuing North reparations-like policies. It's also a pretty white but very liberal city. Georgetown University has done a reparations program. The Episcopal Church has done a reparations program. I do think there's a core group of cities and institutions that are pretty small and are pretty white, but the white people there have a fair amount of income and are pretty liberal. And I can imagine, like, if you picked out the small town, like Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm just guessing, if you got me a map of the, what are the small towns in America that are very liberal and a pretty upper income and where there's not a lot of racial strife in part because there aren't a ton of black people in these places, I think you could imagine a lot of reparation style programs passing in those places. And that's where the momentum, I think, will be. I'd have, you'd have to figure out what are the equivalents to Asheville and Evanston, maybe elite college towns, maybe is where I would go next. So I think you can see movements like that. But do I think states are going to do it or the federal government, that's going to be much harder right now. But again, I think the moral case, these police shootings and how the police treat black people, the moral case is getting stronger. And so I think that's going to be hard to ignore. I think we're probably going to see a decent amount of movement on Evanston-like proposals in other municipalities. I don't think it's going to get traction at the federal level. I think right now the safe position for Democrats is to say that they're in support of this commission because I think saying that buys them time to figure out what they're actually in favor of. And I didn't, I haven't seen a lot of Democrats, save for like Marianne Williamson in 2019, saying that they're in favor of direct cash payments or outlining what specific reparations-based policies they're in favor of. So I think right now, since it's not a make-or-break issue in a primary or general election, if Democrats go along that safe, moderate route of, I'm okay with this commission, but then we'll figure it out later, I think that's kind of the position that it's going to take until the general public puts more pressure on lawmakers to actually do one thing or another. Yeah, I guess one thing that I was thinking about in, in reading about this is the fight over same-sex marriage. And at least according to some people who were fighting for the legalization of same-sex marriage, one crucial innovation in messaging that occurred there was making the push for same-sex marriage about love and not about the Constitution or fairness. And I was thinking about that because in reading the arguments against reparations, it's a lot of stuff like this happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago, And, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. And it's a lot of sort of like empty stuff like that. One thing this commission would do, in addition to making recommendations about reparations, is study the lasting effects of slavery and the lasting effects of ongoing systemic racism. So my point is, like, I do wonder a little bit, as this conversation in the general public matures, and becomes more about the effects here and now, I do wonder if that changes the conversation in favor of reparations for some white voters. I think if I had to predict, 
I would say reparations is going to support will go up among Democrats. And I think you're already seeing that. I, a lot of the polls I see suggest it already is close to 50-50 among Democrats. If I had to yeah. predict, I'd say in five years, we're closer to 70, 75. In the Democratic coalition, I think it's going to be white people are moving. The last five years of news coverage have in some ways been the reparations report. Like we, every day you get the New York Times, the Post, what we do, like racism is is real. COVID yeah. showed people who are black are dying and more higher rates. We can't explain this except to say it's probably about systemic rate. I think that among Democrats, I think is going to grow. I think the question might be, does the opposition get even harder among, I don't know how much harder it can get, but does it get much harder on the right? Is, is it maybe one just where like 75% of Democrats are for it, 97% of Republicans are against it, and that means nothing can pass, but it's still sort of like it comes like gun control. Well, gun control is popular with Republican voters and not politicians. But, but I do think you're going to see overall net gain in popularity. I think that's really smart to me. And the numbers for Republicans probably can't shift that much because they're almost universally opposed to reparations. But if support for reparations among Democrats grows, you could have really easily imagined reparations becoming much more of a motivating, like the issue for Republicans. But like to Perry's point, I was looking at Pew polling just from 2016 to 2020, if you look at Clinton voters compared to Biden voters. The share who say that white people benefit a great deal from advantages in society that black people do not have jumped from 40 to 59%. That's Clinton voters to Biden voters. So we're talking Democratic supporters here. The share who said it is a lot more difficult to be a black person in this country than it is to be a white person jumped from 57 to 74%. Again, Clinton voters to Biden voters. So to me, it's not a long jump from there to like, oh yeah, we have to do something about this. But again, that's just among Democrats. And that inherently, the lack of movement among Republicans obviously limits how much movement there can be overall. The other question might be, I think cash payments is going to be really hard. I think housing support, if you lived in an area that was redlined, you get this amount of money. If you lived in the Jim Crow South, you get this money. You're in your 60s. I think cash payments for 40 million people, Oprah would have to probably say, I will not take it. Michael Jordan, I need to say, I'm, you know, you can imagine, yeah. a, I think like cash payments for every black person who, you know, every native born black person is going to be challenging. I think more specific things, maybe free college and HBCUs if you make this amount of income. I think Cory Burger talked about baby bonds during the campaign, and they would be targeted at people with lower incomes. They would go to some white people too, but it would be income. I think broader programs for income inequality will end up helping black people more than white people, but may actually hit some white people too, and therefore be useful. I think cash payments to only black people is the way everyone's thinking about this, but I'm guessing will not actually be the final proposal. Well, that's actually already the Biden administration's approach in some ways. For example, this American Rescue Plan, it's race-blind in large part. However, they've talked about the policies in such a way that they say, well, these will disproportionately advantage Black or Latino communities and the plurality of the recipients of certain amounts of money, like the largest amount of money that you get, et cetera, would still be white, obviously, just because there are so many more white people in the country that the plurality of poor people in America are white. But they're talking about it in such a way that like this addresses these issues that they think to address maybe more specifically would be so politically unpalatable. You've talked here a little bit about like the salience issue going up or going down, et cetera. 
do we think this is an issue that increasingly is salient for voters writ large? For example, same-sex marriage became more and more salient until it reached a tipping point, and then we don't talk about it anymore because it's not as controversial. Or there's things like gun control that go up and down and up and down with the news cycle and at least so far haven't reached a tipping point of resolving. I mean, how does this political conversation move forward? I think support for reparations will go up probably in the next five years or so. I think right now when we're looking at it, it's not really that big of an issue in the Democratic Party. I don't think any Democrat running for president feels like they have to run on their proposal for reparations in order to win voters per se. But maybe that will change in five to 10 years. I don't think it's like gun control where we're going to see it ebb and flow. I think over time, there's just going to be more support for reparations and reparations-based policies. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I think even if this ends up just being symbolic, the fact that Biden, who, as we've talked about on this podcast, is in some ways like the perfect proxy for like the mainstream center of the Democratic Party as that's moved over time, the fact that Biden felt he had to support this commission during the campaign and and has followed through on it sort of is telling. And if support on the left for reparation keeps increasing, and if we see more efforts by elected Democrats to push policies, whether they're cash payments or, or sort of more indirect policies like the ones Perry was describing, I really have to imagine that the salience on the right would increase a lot. I mean, there's just such a history of any policy, to put it bluntly, aimed at helping Black people. There's a significant backlash among white voters. That's like, frankly, one of like the ironclad rules of American politics. So so I, I guess I, I do think the salience will increase over time if, and I agree with Alex, that if support increases over time on the left, then I think salience will also. I think the salience actually is really high right now on the right. Like when you think about how many Republicans want to ban critical race theory or the 1619 project, if you read the critical race theory, we can debate what that means. If you read the 1619 Project, you are left with the conclusion that black people have been treated terribly, systemically, and that's why they have lower wealth and income. If you read those things seriously, it's really hard to debate reparations. You can debate the logistics of reparations, but it's hard to say reparations are obviously stupid once you read those things. So one, the right is already very aware that the reparations movement is gaining some salience and strength. They're trying to shut down the ways in which that salience is happening, which is this sort of attention on racism and racial equality. Like in some ways, the reparations discussion is already happening. Like you said, Biden is doing a lot of policies that read like someone who believes that reparations should happen, but can't actually propose them. So let me do these mini reparations and all my little bills, but I did not, I'm not for reparations. I'm just for these things that, you know, help black people more and make up for past discrimination. So I think politics right now, the chief divide in a certain way is how bad do you think black people have been discriminated against and what policies and how aggressive of policies do you support to change those, which is that, you know, a lot of people think George Floyd should not be shot by the police, but how aggressively you want to change policing to make up for that is sort of a Democratic Republican divide and on some level also a centrist Democrat versus more liberal Democrat divide. So I think we are really having a reparations debate in public and the commission's only a small part of it. We're, we're really discussing how do we treat black people in every race, I think. 
All right, well, let's leave things there. As we mentioned, we will watch whether or not this reparations bill gets taken up for a vote in the full house, and we'll see how the conversation plays out going forward. But for now, thank you, Alex, Micah, and Perry. Thanks, Galen. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>